All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, change in weather outside, the warmer days, longer days, more sunshine. We thank you for that season and this season you've given us. Pray tonight as we open your word, we study about the authority of your word that you would reveal not just uh, letters on a page, but the authority of this word that you have revealed to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Biblical authority. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. Is there such a thing? Some people doubt that can't even say those two words. Biblical authority. If you reject biblical authority, something will take its place. Nobody's neutral. Everybody acknowledges there's something bigger than us. So what is that something? Biblical authority versus human reasoning. What is our absolute source of authority? Is there an absolute truth? See, I believe there is. Is the Bible perfect and infallible? Now, let me clarify when I say that. In its original language, if properly translated, I mean, you could take the original language and translated incorrectly, and it would be fallible. So when I say, is the Bible in its original language correctly translated? Perfect. I believe it is. I believe God has protected it supernaturally. I believe He has protected it over the generations so that we have it today in authority. Let me give you a physical example. We are, I have a confidence that if you're here on a Wednesday night on the first day of spring, you're a follower of Jesus because you'd be doing something else. We are all followers of Jesus. We believe that Jesus will lead us. We, we believe Jesus will lead us into his eternal kingdom. One way or the other, through him coming in the clouds or us seeing him through a graveyard. We believe that one way or the other, we are saved. Our soul is going to be taken into his presence and we're going to get a new body and we're going to spend forever with him, right? Somebody say amen. amen. That, that's what we believe. So how do I know that following Jesus is going to save me? How do I know about I'm going to get a new body? How do I know about a heaven? How do I know about the resurrection from the dead on the last day? How, how do I know any of that stuff? Did you Google it? How'd you know? So I just sit here and said, we all know. And I said, we know this. But how do you know that? It's a good question. It's just logic. How do you know that? We say we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. How do you know that? We believe he rose from the dead. How do you know that? We believe he sits right now at the right hand of the Father. How do you know that? We read it in the Bible. We read it in the Bible. I've told you in almost every one of, the, uh, every one of these sessions, I don't struggle with any of this. You know, I guess my foundation's pretty secure. I was raised believing it. Uh, now, I recognize just because I was raised believing it is not enough, Okay. That's a, that's a great place to start. But there's a point in your life where you gotta, your faith becomes your faith. It's, it can't be your mom and daddy's faith. 
You reach a point in life, you've got to decide what, who you are. You've got to decide what you believe. And I believe the Bible is authoritative. Paul writes the following to Timothy, and I believe to us in this room, because I believe it's Holy Spirit, and I believe the Word of God's alive, which means it is not just generational. It doesn't matter which generation reads it. It has still power. 2 Timothy 3.14, Paul says, But you must remain faithful to the things you've been taught. Wonder what things he was taught. And what was the source of the information that he was taught? You got to be, he's looking, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to draw logic into this concept of biblical authority. Paul writes to Timothy and says, you got to be faithful to the things you were taught. You know they're true. Well, what are those things? You know they're true, for you know that you can trust those who taught you. Well, the ones that taught you, where'd they get it? You've been taught the Holy Scriptures. Here comes the answer. You've been taught the Holy Scriptures since you were a little kid, Timothy. And you know the people who taught you those things were telling you the truth. You've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood. And they have given you wisdom. That the Holy Scriptures. Here it is. They gave you something. They gave you wisdom to receive salvation. They gave you something that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. And then he says, I want, you, I want to draw out the context. I want to draw out the context. The context of the next verse is all Scripture is inspired by God. So that stuff that you were taught as a kid and that stuff that you hold to be true and that stuff that revealed you have salvation in Jesus Christ, all Scripture, all Scripture is inspired by God. It all came from God. It all has its origin in God. It is all protected by the Holy Spirit, delivered to you by God. That's what it is. And it's useful. It's not just words on a page. It's useful for what? Let's examine. To teach us what is true. So let's give an example. You don't have this, okay? You never heard this book. Nobody ever told you about this book. You never read this book. This book was never anywhere in your life. What's true? I can tell, let me answer the question. What's true is whoever is in charge. Whatever they say, that's true. They can make it up. And if they're bigger than you are and they got a gun, suddenly it's true. It's true. But then you introduce this. Suddenly there's a truth. Suddenly there's something that's beyond us. All Scripture is inspired by God. Not by man. Not by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's inspired by God. It's, it's bigger than us. It comes from a place beyond us, from a person over us. And it teaches us what is true, makes us realize what's wrong with our lives or in our lives. It corrects us. You know, truth does that, doesn't it? It's like a compass. You know, you can, you can think you're north. You can, you can act like you're north. But a compass tells you whether or not you are north. That's what this thing does. It's just, it just north. And if you line yourself up next to it and you're pointing the wrong way, guess what? It don't move. You do. It doesn't move. That's why it's called truth. 
It, te- it corrects us when we're wrong, teaches us to do what is right. God uses it. What, what do we talk? What's it? All Scripture is inspired by God. God uses it and, and equips His people to prepare and equip His people to do what? To live your life, to do good work, to have purpose and meaning in your life. It's not just Paul writing to Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed, okay? For me, that'd be enough. I'm okay if, it, if Paul was the only one that said it. But it's not just Paul that says it. Jesus tells us something. And again, let, let's, let's use some logic here. Jesus says, obey my words. Would you get a fax from heaven? Well, how are you going to do that? How, how, how are you going to know the words if you obey the words of Jesus, in fact, let me read it, John 14, 23. Jesus replied, all who love me will do what I say. So how are you going to know what he said? Well, you wouldn't even know that if I didn't read this to you, and I didn't get it by facts. All who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them, and we will come and make our home with each of them. Anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me. And remember, my words are not my own. My words, my words. You love me, you'll do my words. My words are not my own. What I'm telling you is from the Father who sent me. So, if this is the secret to eternal life, what are his words? This is really important. What I'm about to tell you is really important. In fact, now let me just say it. The first verse of the book of Hebrews, if you went through our Hebrew study, the first verse of the book of Hebrews, and I'm just going to kind of go off the top. I didn't didn't put it in the notes. I actually decided later I'd talk about it. The first verse of the book of Hebrews says something like this. In the past, in the Old Testament, before Christ, in the past, God spoke to his people in various ways, various methods, but in these last days, something changed. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. Now, I don't, I want to tell you, that verse to me is breathtaking. Because in the past, Old Testament, God spoke to people in a lot of ways. Burning bush, right? Angels just come down and sit among you talk to you. God talked through a cloud, pillar fire, pillar cloud. I mean, look through the Bible. It's it just all kinds of ways that he spoke to people. But the first verse of the book of Hebrews says something. In the past, God spoke to us in various ways, in various means, through the prophets, through angels, through a donkey talked in the Old Testament. Okay? But in these last days, he is and is speaking to us through his son. Now, here, here we go. What's that got to do with tonight? What is his son? Who is his son? Who is he in Genesis 1? Who is he in Genesis 1? He is the creator. How? Heavy equipment? Bulldoze? How is he creating in Genesis 1? He's the Word. In Genesis 1, what's creating? And God said. Right? He said. 
That's all you got to do. Say it. So go to, go to John 1. What's he in John 1? Okay, in the beginning, Genesis 1, he's creating. Well, you might say, well, it doesn't really say Jesus is there creating. It just says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, okay. Then hold to that thought. How's he doing it? He's speaking. Go to John 1. What's Jesus doing? Who is he? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And everything that was made in the beginning was made by Him, the Word. Okay? So what's creating? Jesus. How? The Word. So Hebrews 1.1 says that in the past God spoke in various ways. But in these last days, He's going to speak through His Son. So how is His Son speaking in the last days? This is it. If, you, if you're not convinced yet, go to the book of Revelation, and when he returns to the earth for his feet to stand on the earth, he will come on a white horse. And what's his name? What's his name? When he, and on him is written this name, the Word of God. In Genesis 1, he is the Word creating. In John 1, it not only is he the Word in John 1, he was creator. John says he was the creator with God in Genesis 1. And in Revelation, when he returns, he comes as the Word. So in the past, God spoke in various ways in various places, through the prophets and different, but, but in these last days, how are you going to get a word from God? You already got it. You already got it. The fall of man began with what? Don't cheat and read the notes. Well, how did the fall of man begin? Satan comes to Eve and says what? Did God really say? What's he questioning? What's he questioning? The word. Now, Eve got it right the first time. You know what she said? God did say. He did say. We're not supposed to be around that tree. Don't eat it. Don't be, you know, but, but what was the fall? Did God really say? In fact, I wrote it on here, Genesis 3, 1. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from the tree in the garden? Do you think Satan didn't know what God said? I think he knew what God said. Is the Bible infallible is God's word infallible is the Bible absolute truth and our source of authority or remember I said a minute ago if you reject biblical authority you will not be neutral and it's okay if you decide I can't do anything about it if you decide to reject biblical authority I'm just going to tell you the truth you will insert in its place something because you're not God. There'll be some authority. You, something, will take, something will fill the void. And I can tell you what, it, its root will be in the adversary. Say, just like in the garden. So here we go. Here's where this thing turns tonight. By the way, 
What the video you're going to see in a minute, it's about 28 minutes maybe, and it's one of my favorite of everyone he does in the session. The issue of a literal six-day, 24-hour-day creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So I'm going to ask you a question. Do you believe he created the heavens and the earth in six days? Six days like we know days. Six days like you're having right now. Six days like they are days now. See, I don't have any trouble with that. In fact, I don't even, you know what my problem in the six-day creation thing is? Why it took six days. I, I just, I don't know why he just didn't go and do it in one second. Because I, I don't have any, I don't struggle with any of this stuff. Because I just think he's, he's God. And if he wanted to do it in one day, he could do it in one day. If he wanted to do it in one minute, he could do it in one minute. So, here's where it's going. We're not saved because we believe that God created the earth in six 24-hour days. That, you're not going to be saved because you're not going to get to heaven and the first test to get in the gate is, do you believe it was six 24-hour days? <clears throat> you're out. That's not it. The problem with rejecting the literal interpretation of Genesis is if you're going to throw that out, what else are you going to throw out? See, you open, you crack the door that attacks biblical authority. And, and one more comment. I just noticed that this last week. Liberty University uh, is a Christian university, one of the, uh, perhaps the largest Christian university in America today. And they teach creationism, six, what, what we're talking about tonight, six literal 24-hour days. But they also offer a class equivalent to Evolution. They offer both. They offer both. Why? I don't know. Let Ken Ham answer. So let's watch the video. Let's ask you a question. If you were able to pop into the Garden of Eden the day after Adam was born, was, was created, not born, the day after Adam, God breathed in Adam the breath of life and he stood up. He was breathing air. Would you have found Adam as a baby, a toddler, or a man? I don't think anybody in the room believes that Adam was a baby. That God breathed into him the breath of life and he became a baby. That God crafted him into an adult male. That pretty much makes sense. God's going to make you... So if you were that day to have to guess Adam's age based upon your current knowledge, how old would Adam be? Stay with me. You would look at Adam and say, based on our current knowledge, you'd say, he's probably 25 years old. He's one day old. Stay with me. Stay with me. You wouldn't really be able to measure time very well in that situation, would you? Because what God created was, in our view, created in its mature state, fully grown state, not baby state. So if you were to jump into that scene and have to say, 
Guess his age. You'd be wrong, right? Okay, let's stay with me. What about the trees? He's in the garden. God had just made the trees, what, just a couple days ago. Were they saplings? If you had to date those trees with your current knowledge, how old would those trees be? Well, you say those trees are thousands of years old. But they're maybe two days old. Do you understand why this is so many people who deny God, deny the word, struggle with this age thing? Well, let's take it a step further because this is really the issue. Modern science, the, the, earth, the, the universe is expanding. It's moving. And you can tell the rate of its movement. You can measure it. So what they do is they measure the distances and do mathematical formulas and equate years to it. It takes so much time, example, for the light of the sun to reach the earth. And it's consistent. It's repeatable. So you can start to measure stuff, right? You can measure and if it's expanding, you can start doing mathematical measurements if you're really smart and got good data. But here's the problem. Same problem with Adam, same problem with trees. When God created the heavens and the earth, he create, did he create them and then allow the light of the sun after creation to make its trip to the earth? Or did he make the creation with that already in place? with the universe already in a mature state and then start the expansion. You wouldn't be able to date it any more than you could date Adam. You couldn't be able to say how old he is. You wouldn't be able to say how old a tree is because God just created the universe in a fully functional, mature state. But then we go from our world and look back at that and take God out of it, and suddenly none of the math matches up. So you got to, you know what you got to do? You got to impose, you got to erase all of Genesis 1 and put in your new numbers. Billions of years. There's two things in this video that, that, that kind of hit me. Number one, he just makes a statement, and I'll make the same statement. He says, I am zealous for the Word of God. May I on the last day be that be me. I am zealous for the word of God. Number two, he said he recognizes that in modern American Christianity, this is a rarity. I told you Liberty University, one of the biggest universities, will not just hold, they won't just teach creation as Genesis teaches it literally. They have to offer an option. Those are the ministers who are coming out of these universities and going into churches. Is, is that an issue of salvation in itself? No, it's not. It's not. The problem is it's an issue of biblical authority. And if you start taking biblical authority and erasing it, who, where do you stop? If I don't believe Genesis 1, 2, 3, if I, if I reject the flood, why am I going to believe Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? You see, evolution, here, here's the foundation. Evolution cannot work without billions of years. Evolution cannot work in a 6,000-year-old earth. 
can't happen. Impossible. And scientists will tell you it's impossible. Evolution, as Darwin or whoever wants to proclaim it, cannot occur in 6,000 years. It's not possible. So, what are you going to do? You got to change the number. You got to make an incomprehensible number. And if you can put an incomprehensible number, then suddenly evolution becomes plausible. The only problem is you made it up. You just made it up. In the late 1800s, unbelievers had to explain the fossils. He went through this. And they had rejected the biblical authority. Unbelievers in England tried to explain how fossils are layered all over the earth. And if they've rejected Noah, they reject Genesis, how do you explain it? So they have to replace it with billions of years. The Bible clearly says that unbelievers will not have eyes that see. I've, I've told you over the last several years, one of the mysteries to me is why some people can't see what other people see so clearly. And the perfect example is Jesus is on the cross, right? He's on the cross, literally, he's on the cross. There's a thief on this side and a thief on that side. It is pretty logical to assume that both of the thieves have seen exactly the same thing on exactly the same day. They heard, they smelled, they tasted, they all experienced the exact same things on the exact same day, separated by a man named Jesus Christ. One of them says, save me, and the other one curses him. Why? I don't know. Why does one get it, the other one doesn't get it? I don't know. Why is one blind and the other one can see? I don't know. I don't know. I know this. You better not follow the blind one. That's about all I can tell you. You better not try to follow the guy that's blind. Jesus says in Matthew 15, Jesus replied, every plant not planted by my heavenly Father will be uprooted. If it's not from him, if it's not from God, it's not going to survive. Every plant not planted by my Father is going to be uprooted. You won't survive this. You won't survive it. So ignore them. So, so secular scientists who deny Christ, ignore them. Why? Next verse. They are blind guides leading the blind. And if one blind person guides another, they will both fall into a ditch. Don't follow blind people. Let me ask you this question based on Scripture. Based on Scripture, based on Scripture, New Testament Scripture, who had the most trouble accepting Jesus as the Son of God? Who? If you study the Scripture, you know the answer. The answer is right below it. The highly educated intellectuals of that day. Why? Look, look, the Pharisees. And, and I don't want to just say Pharisees because it wouldn't just, but, but they, they were the ones who gave the hardest time. The Pharisees. Who are Pharisees? The most religious, educated, elite people in his day were the Pharisees. Who had the hardest time? Did all Pharisees reject Jesus? No. I'm only using the illustration. But who in the group that Jesus taught had the most trouble believing the simplicity of his teaching? He spoke it. They, believed, they heard it. They received it, accepted it, and walked under its authority. Who had the most trouble? Pharisees. Why? But he could go down to the fishing pond, down to the Sea of Galilee, and find a bunch of guys on a boat, 
And he said it, and somehow or another, they just like, yep, that's true, let's go. Leave everything behind following. Well, why is one group seem so accessible to this word, and the other group seems to just deny it at, just because he said it? I wonder if it's because they looked inside themselves for truth. They started looking inside themselves. Rather than accepting an outside source of authority, an outside source, you know what, you know, my mom used to call it a know-it-all. You know, you ever try to talk a know-it-all into something? You, you, they don't, you can't talk them into it because they know it all. And you can't tell somebody who knows it all anything because they're already, they already know everything. And there's a group of people in this case, they were the Pharisees. They were know-it-alls. And Jesus says, well, you don't know anything. And they just rejected him. So I want to do something. I want to read. Um, I don't have time to go through this in detail like I was hoping to. 1 Corinthians 1.18. The message of the cross. Message of the cross. All right, here we go. You, you got a copy of it. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. Where did you hear the message of the cross? It came out of a book. Okay? It's foolishness to those who are perishing, those who are going to destruction. But we who are being saved, see, there's two groups of people. There's two groups of people. But we who are being saved, we don't look at this as message of the cross out of this book as foolishness. I see it as the power of God. Totally different. And, and what's the context of verse 18? Look at 19, as the scriptures say. The scriptures, there you go. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. Paul is actually quoting Isaiah 29. The authority of scripture. I will destroy what? I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of... In other words, I'll make the know-it-alls look stupid. That's a pretty rough translation, but the, I'll make the know-it-alls... Look stupid. They never asked me to translate anything. So where does this leave the philosophers? Don't just look at old-time Pharisees. Look at today. These people who have rejected God and put in its place their own doctrine. Where does this leave the philosophers? Where does this leave the scholars? Where does this leave the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. You'll never find him through academia. Does that make academia wrong? It doesn't make academia wrong. But academia without God is foolishness. It's foolishness. It's devoid of truth. So then he says this. He has used our foolish preaching. Man, what a resume. He has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It's foolish to the Jews who are asking for signs from heaven. It's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, here's that core message. The Jews are offended. The Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called by God. Why do some people get it and some people don't? I don't know. But to those called by God. To salvation, both Jews and Gentiles. Christ is the power of God 
He is the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans. And God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you, few of you, I wonder who's in the audience when he originally is thinking this. Few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy. Let's look around the room today. Everybody just get your head up and look around the room today. Few of us were wise in the world's eyes. Few of us were powerful. And few of us were wealthy. Nah, none of y'all are rich. When God called you. Why? Not a lot of know-it-alls looking to learn much. Instead, God, not me, not you. This is the mercy and grace, the sovereignty thing. Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish. Us. God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those know-it-alls who think they are wise. And he chose the things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring nothing, bring to nothing what the world considers important. And as a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. We come as children. We come as children. I'll let you read the rest of it. I'll give, I'm going to close with an illustration. I've shared this before, but, you know, to me, it illustrates this entire thing tonight. Um, it was a long time ago. My youngest son, Michael, was um, just a little toddler guy. Um, he's a big man now, but he was just a little guy. And we had gone to Corinth Church that Sunday. And uh, if you've ever been to Corinth Church, there's a retainer wall about, I don't know, it's, no, it's probably about that high. And the yard is above the retainer wall and the parking lot's down on the lower level. And uh, Michael was playing up in the yard with a bunch of little kids. And I'm down on the lower level parking lot. And I say, Michael, it's time to go. Let's go. And I'm standing, I don't know, six feet from the wall, Michael's up on the wall. Michael, it's time to go. Let's go. And I, out of the corner of my eye, I saw him take off running. And he just dove through there. So I'm like, I look, and here he comes. He's coming through the air. Slow motion. Just kids coming through the air. And this is blacktop down here. And my heart just like stops because I'm thinking, I didn't mean like that, come on. And, and by the grace of God, I caught him. I caught him. Now, now, here's the reason I use that illustration. Never for one second did he think I would drop him. He could not imagine that his father did not have the ability to catch him. So he just jumps 
He doesn't know what I know. <laughs> Absolute trust. The faith of a child. What? That's my father. He don't miss. That's my father. He is our father. We are his children. There's not a chance in the world he's going to drop you. Not a chance. And he used, he's called foolish people. You know what? They're foolish. You know why it's foolish, this whole thing? Because he said it. We heard it. We believed it. We received it. And we jumped. We jumped into his arms. We took our lives jumped off that big ledge, never doubting for a second, he's going to catch me. That's faith. To the world, we look like a bunch of nuts. I get it. I th we do. But I'll tell you, there's a the last day coming. And it ain't just coming for Christians. Everybody's got a last day. What are you going to do on the last day? Father, thank you for your word. Give us faith, wisdom, discernment. It's got to come from you because we don't have it without you. And Lord, send us out into this dark world with this good news. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.